this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Simone Vesner, who is from Birkbeck, um, who teaches arts management. Um, and she is going to talk about her new book, which is called Artist Voices in Cultural Policy, Careers, Myths and the Creative Profession After German Unification, uh, which is published in 2018. So welcome to the podcast. Very nice of having me. Thank you. No, no, it's delighted to have you. Um this is a really fascinating book for several reasons, partially because of the richness of the empirical material, but also because I think it makes some important theoretical contributions to how we understand um, art and, and artists. But before we talk about the book, it'd be nice to kind of put the book in context. So could you tell me a bit about sort of how you ended up writing the book and, and I guess the kind of the story of where the book fits in your career, because it's, it's got a bit of a history to it. Yeah, I mean, my my interest uh, in visual artists goes back a long way. Um, I worked and lived with artists. Uh, I my own background as arts manager, as producer, as practitioner. Um, my, you know, I, I was working uh, in with and around galleries, and my very very first job. Uh, after the A-levels was actually as a gallery assistant. And so that interest um, was focused on first on the institution and it moved uh, more towards the indi- in individual producer uh, in later years. The uh, original idea of, of the book uh, goes back many, many years. It um, And... It also the ideas around the book changed quite a bit. Um, so, as a trigger point, I wanted to uh, investigate how visual artists uh, related to German unification. So, I wanted to know what happened to them before, during, and after German unification. So, it's always been an exploratory study. But the emphasis was right from the beginning on, of, on change and how to uh, capture that change. So it focused on originally on the working on living conditions. And then later on, it developed into a, a narrative, and a narrative of transformation. And transformation is understood in the sense that it's an indicator for career interpretation and development. And... Um, so it is a longitudinal, it developed into a, a longitudinal research project and the monograph is a result of that, what I call now the visual artist cohort study. And that captures career development by interviewing the same visual artist from the same region. And so far I carried out two waves, one at the end of the 1990s and another one in 2013-14. I mean, that, that was a really 
interesting and, and I guess kind of slightly unusual thing about the book that you've been able to kind of um, have this moment in time where you done field work and then go back, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in the more kind of contemporary setting. And that's one of the things actually that um, I think really sort of um, marks the book out as, as unique. But the other is this kind of context. Um, and it's probably worth doing a little bit of background on on why the German context is 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 interesting. I mean, there's I mean there are loads of reasons why it's interesting, but why kind of in particular that historical period, the sort of seventy years that you try and chart, as well as uh, the German context as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. So there are there are several reasons. So the political trigger point, German unification, as you know, looking at the working on living condition that changed overnight for the artists. So how could artists deal with this? Uh, and then this emphasis on, on change, that, that major political uh, trigger point brings with it. The, the 70 years, they relate to the lifespan of, of the artist's reflection about their career. And what is interesting here is that in the first wave, uh, the this kind of artist reflection was in, uh, wasn't 70 years. It was about 40 years. It was really focusing on the GDR and the immediately and, and the immediately after time after German unification. Well, in the second wave, uh, artists started to include their childhood, for example, in 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 their career development, and that they, they wouldn't mention that at all in the first wave. So the lifespan is dictated by uh, by the artists themselves. So it would be interesting to see if there's a third wave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What then? You know what we see then. I mean, it, it, it's interesting that both the kind of you know the title foregrounds this artist voices, um, but also this kind of uh, I suppose is a kind of conceptual thing as well in terms of placing the artist's voice. Um, in the text, and I, I wonder sort of why, uh, I suppose, why you sort of felt the need to do that or what, you know, what was kind of missing in terms of discussions of, of cultural policy where they hadn't talked about the artist's voice before. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what needs to be considered is also the location where, you know, or where this study is based. Uh, and Saxony has such a rich cultural tradition. Yeah, I mean, all the, the like the bridge artists, you know, at the beginning of the uh, um, of the twentieth uh, century, they you know were very well known, and um, so you look back at this thriving art scene that still continues, but with it comes a succession of three hundred years of supportive cultural policies. Uh, so that makes it also interesting, you know, to to study just. Uh, the the cultural policies of that particular region, but of course it, there's also another reason, a very personal reason, why I chose Saxony, and that is uh, I'm from Saxony myself. So you know, and I have spent formative years in the region, and I ex- experienced unification there. So I was rather young, but uh, I also went through that uh, process, not as an artist, uh, also not as an artist. So the title, or you know, why artist voices? Of course, it is slightly misleading if you talk about <laughs> visual artist and then you know uh, focus uh, the, the title on 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 sound. Um, 
But the the main aspect that came out of the study is that not being listened to or hardly being listened to, and of course that connects uh, and that you know accidentally connect. I mean, the book was you know nearly written when the political debate really you know focused on uh, aspect of you know migration in in Germany, and so where you had similar political voices. Uh, speaking out and saying, why are you not listening to us? So there were the kind of, you know, the, the study suddenly became very political. And but artists' voice, there are also other reasons. So the, the mainstream discourse in cultural policy doesn't talk about artists as such. It talks about themes, it talks about topics, for example, precarity, creative labor, value. These are all you know, topic-based, and it's it's rarely talked about the individual art producer, and I don't think we should forget, you know, also there's a lot of emphasis at the moment on the audience and on, on co-production, but uh, the artist is still the, the main producer. And so, and, and at the same time, there's also a marginalization of the work of art, uh, uh, visible in the creative industry discourse. Uh, and as you see how, for example, galleries now hang the pictures, uh, they, or, you know, they choose the hanging according to um, that, you, that you can take a, a, good, uh, a good photograph of it. And that you know that you are incorporate that you incorporate a picture in in your selfie. So uh, the work of art has become an illustration for other things, and and, and it relates to new technology and social social media use. And in addition to that, the old gatekeepers like the critics, the dealer, the publishers, they are all replaced by large IT conglomerates such as Google, and they favoring participatory approaches. So I felt there is uh, an, a need to bring the artists back from the periphery into the center. I mean, we're, cultural policy debate. We're going to kind of come, come back actually to a lot of those um, contextual um, or circumstantial factors when we talk about the second half of the book, mm-hmm. uh, which focuses uh, sort of specifically on on cultural policy. But I guess the moment of kind of foregrounding the artist's voice raises the question of, of how have you, have you kind of gone about this and, and how have you done this? And, and the first half of the book deals with this by thinking about myths, um, you know, memory, um, and also kind of, I guess, identity sort of broadly mm-hmm. um, defined. So it, it'd be good to kind of talk through those three sort of core arts chapters um, maybe through the idea of kind of what what is myth and you know what kind of myths are important to the artists mm-hmm. um, before we move on to kind of memory and identity mm-hmm. um, I mean when we talk about myths we always uh, or on misanalysis the emphasis is usually on dismantling the unrealness of its character and and that you know you can find in the romantic notion of the artistic 
myths, lots have been written about that. Um, I approached myths from a different approach because it comes out of what, what the artists were saying. Also, they didn't use myth as a terminology, but what they portrayed was very much myth, myth-like. Um, so the myth in, in this monograph is understood as a certainty uh, and it's fulfilling a vital function for artist's career development. And as, a, as an entity, it's adaptable, it's flexible, uh, it's a flexible cultural value, and it provides an explanation related to success, risk-taking, and individuality of a career in the arts. So it's very much understood as a developmental tool of career progression. Oh, could you give a couple of examples, maybe? Yeah. So this, uh, you know, the, you, you have um, the idea of the myth changed, um, and that comes, you know, now I'm going to focus on this idea of, you know, before, during and after uh, unification. So that um, during the GDR, the Art Academy was uh, established as an elite education. For example, only five artists were admitted per year. And you had three art academies, so that makes 15 artists per year. And if you made it, that already elevated you to that being very special. And uh, the emphasis in the art academy was very much, uh, you know, fostering that talent and making inherent uh, intuition visible. So the focus was on artistic quality, and that served as a counterweight to ideological pressure. And, you know, accompanied with this idea of self-censorship and the limited freedom of speech. So the other side of the myth, uh, what you have, you know, there's this charismatic idea of the, the genius and, and, and talented and uh, indiv individual uh, is, of course, that of the starving artist. So precarity uh, wasn't played out. None of the, the artists in the GDR had to starve, uh, but uh, it was played out in ideological terms. So they were starved of artistic freedom. And on the one hand, they were really taking uh, care of the provision of social and financial securities was compared to today really unsinkable. Everybody had a studio. They got a, uh, when you entered the art academy, you got a scholarship. When you finished the art uh, academy, you got a three-year development grant, and then you uh, could apply to become a member of the artist association. And that. Uh, all of these 15 people, they knew right from the beginning they are going to be an artist and they're going to be an artist for the rest of their life. Um, of course, that all changed with, with unification. and But this security, this feeling of security and, and also belonging um, connected to the idea of artistic quality, uh, that led them to uh, uh, kind of play out the, the social side of, of, of their career development. And during unification, uh, they, they actually took leadership positions. Uh, so the idea of the charismatic artist uh, was translated into politics, and the artist became a charismatic figurehead, advocating social and political change and aiming to resolve tangible and ideological precarity. 
So the, the idea of the mist changed and in, in, in this respect. So and at the same time they used unification as a kind of springboard for for their career uh, while going into politics. That didn't last very long and after unification um of course um the precarity or the of ideological pressure was dissolved but other forms of precarity such as the individualization of risk prevalence and, and pathology of precarity such as anxiety emerged and so the narrative of the starving artist took hold as a possibility and the artist uh, reacted to that um, that in, in, in the way they um, uh, understood markets they had high expectation to sell uh, their, their works of art um, but at the same time, art production for market purposes was looked down. And, and so good art can only be judged by artistic quality and, and not by the market. And that then feeds into this quest for being special and that, you know, maintained to be, become a kind of uh, hallmark of, of uh, their development. And so miss uh, this changing character of the miss provides a rationale for also for professional misfortunes. If you don't sell, uh, you know you can uh, if you and, and you fo- focus on artistic quality that is not uh, imprinted or not carried by by the market, uh, you still can develop your career. Uh, what what was uh, striking that I found the business skills artists develop business skills, but not within their core artistic uh, ideas. They uh, took on side jobs when they didn't sell well. Then they took on side jobs, and they called that side jobs, um, and they kept that separate from the core artistic work. But what they did is they in they brought their artistic skills into these side professions. So they set up exhibition design companies and then, uh, for example, uh, became curators and curated museums exhibitions with a view of the artist. Um, And for them, they they expressed that quite uh, vividly that they improved these professions, these adjacent side professions. And so there is an entrepreneurial aspect, but it is distinctive from the core artistic practice. So in this sense, Miss Foster's uh, distinction, it protects artistic reputation, while at the same time de- delivers a rationale and, and acts as a, as a driving force. I mean, I mean, as you were kind of collecting this data, you know, sort of speaking to them, mm-hmm. interviewing them about their careers, their relationships to the market, how... Things have changed, you know, in comparison to, um, I mean, I, I, from a British point of view, I always call it East Germany, although GDR, mm-hmm. um, and then to, to unified Germany. There is this question about memory and, you know, sort of the role that memory plays both, you know, as a kind of um, structuring um thing within their own you know kind of careers and sets themselves but also and, and on a sort of personal note more more sort of interesting to me was the idea of memory and cultural policy studies mm. which you sort of argue has not been a 
um, a concept that has, has been, you know, kind of used and explored, and, and and is almost sort of thing that the book is kind of saying actually this is important, and you should be, you know, kind of concentrating on this. So I wonder if you could sort of say why memory is important for cultural policy studies. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps you know, give a couple of examples from um, from the discussion with the artists. Mm. And I mean, the artist uh, understanding of memory or they, they in, in this sense they use memory as a kind of strategic tool um, to narrate their career they structure and and they structure the interview uh, because they are narrative interviews so they use memory and tr- memory triggers uh, certain events uh, that they then portray in in their narrative or as their narrative uh, so they try to structure the interview and that means also they structure their own narrative with memory and so what they uh, recollect are lively celebrations of what artists anticipated and learned in and through culture before and and during and after unification but of course also uh, the longitudinal approach of the study uh, you know, forces them to sink in these uh, layers of remembering the past, and in but what they what they are very adamant about is, is that they try to use memory to rectify uh, an understanding being written out of of German of the German history of art, and so and, and at this point it becomes. Uh, political and interacts, you know, with the artist's career development. So memory constitutes, it changes, it distorts at the same time, you know, the identity over over a lifetime. And and similar to myths, it provides a reasoning uh, for career development. And it, I think, why we uh, have ignored, or not ignored. Um, but not paid much attention to, to memory and cultural policy studies. Um, it Memory refers to time, and it positions interpretation in time. It, it, it bridges the past to the present and, and the future, um, but it has less collective judgment. It's more a personal selection, and uh, it reflects the presence but gives alternatives to thinking about the present. That is not, uh, when you compare it with history, selective in the same way, and it denies linear accounts, what we, you know, still find in in historical uh, in the historical selection process. So uh, memory with this polyphonic nature, you know, and especially the individual memory, interacts then with the collective memory and artist and and situates the artist uh, within these different memory communities. I think uh, there's one aspect where cultural policy has done uh, quite quite a bit of, of very good work is uh, related to forgetting. And and the moment when so that moment when memory fails and then remembering the remembering moment is when that is rectified. So we are good in dealing you know, and asking this question was has been forgotten and why? And it remains an important topic, but the the focus so far was on that forgetting with, you know, the abolition of the slave 
trade. I mean, it, it, of course, it connects also to this uh, anniversary, you know, and event thinking. But for me, memory is, is, is really important because it can unpack, shape and test cultural values. And from that point of view, the cultural value debate uh, hasn't really connected to a huge extent with, with, with the memory study. I mean, memory study is a very rich, rich, rich field in itself. So it's what I would like to emphasize is the plurality of memory that can bring uh, a lot to cultural policy studies. And at the same time, it can also, uh, or remembering can motivate and push for, for actions as the artists portrayed um, in, in what, you know, how they reacted to the idea of being written out of, of history, of the history of art in, in, the, in the unified Germany. I mean, we, we should probably uh, think about that a bit more, actually, because uh, the second half of the book grapples with um, German cultural policy sort of more generally. And obviously there are different levels because you have, you know, on one hand two nations, but also, you know, individual parts mm -hmm. of the two nations and stuff like that. So, um, I mean, could you give me a crash course in German cultural policy? <laughs> I suppose that the key thing is like... You know, where do artists fit in your kind of mm -hmm. uh, narrative of, of German cultural policy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you know, talking about German cultural policy is, is we, we should really call it cultural policies because, you know, with the responsibility of the land of the yeah. culture, yeah. there is that, uh, you know, structural uh, uh, divide that every land uh, can come up with their own concepts. And so... For this study, Saxony, you know, is so it's Saxonian cultural policy. But again, uh, it is part of the wider idea of, of transformation policy. And, and that has three um, kind of, you know, you could divide that in, in three kind of stages. The first one is when Germany unified. And so you have that the East, East Germany was perceived as, as an adaptation uh, process. There was this rich cultural landscape and that had to be incorporated into, you know, from a communist or socialist ideas to, to a democracy. So it was perceived as the East Germany to catch up. They, uh, it's an implied approach to transformation so in Eastern Germany integrated in something that, what is known and what has been successful. Then um, there is an understanding of transformation that is more applied. And it doesn't come necessarily from the outside, but it is based on the needs of society development. And uh, that is interpreted as an imperative necessity of change. And that relates to digitalization and globalization. So these big issues, they are need to be tackled within the whole of Germany. So that's more, it's not necessarily adapting, but applying it. And, and of course, the, the, the third, third stage is when globalization became real and globalization appeared as a practical term and that happened for example with the uh, migrant crisis uh, so suddenly it became a, a touchable experience and the and the perception of the artist changed while well, in the adaptation phase they are very much the, at the receiving end but of course then with the migration crisis 
uh, that idea of um, changed and so the artists uh, were giving and they were not finding themselves at the, as the receiver anymore. But again, that's a recent development and it is actually that part also, it's very interesting, it's, it's not uh, part of, of that book. So the artists, artists, the visual artists fit into the first um, stage, the very much the implied notion of, of transformation. What, what does this, I guess, kind of um, broader canvas of changes in the German system, you know, kind of Saxony, but also the wider, you know, globalization and the kind of transformation of um, delivery? What, what does that mean for sort of artists, I guess, as like professionals, you know, as the idea of kind of like artists having having a job? Because this is where the book sort of starts to gesture towards. A conclusion. I mean, and the question that kind of came to mind was like, are artists even a profession? You know, is it appropriate? Because obviously, you tell the story of how seemingly we moved from a quite a clear set of professional boundaries to these more kind of you know entrepreneurial, um, highly networked. You know, doing things that are like lots of different occupations. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, kind of, a, are artists really a profession? Is that a is that a That's, useful term? Yeah. Yes, uh, of course, I think if we were discussing it from a UK perspective, that doesn't really, you know, capture what, what is an artist's life is, is about. Uh, however, in that context, I think it, or, you know, in general, you know, it depends on the perspective you apply. And the artist sees themselves as a profession. Mm, yeah. Uh, but it's very obvious uh, that they are not classified as one of the professions. Uh, in, in the GDR, you have uh, all the hallmarks of a very functional, narrow approach of the profession. So it's selective entry, autonomous professional practice. There is economic success to a certain degree. There is social reputation did, um, given to them. So uh, it is like, you know, the, the narrow functional definition fulfills the criteria. The artists, the, the association of visual artists, they regulated entry, they masked a quasi-monopoly using work allocation models. I mean, the artists, they never uh, had to market themselves in in the GDR because the artists' association of visual artists would allocate work. Mm. Uh, And it was allocated on a kind of really uh, fair uh, base. So the artists knew if they didn't have a major work, they would get one the following year, yeah. Or you know, they didn't have a major retrospective, so they would they would have one coming up. Which, which is a formal cultural policy position, isn't exactly. it? You know, which, yeah. which affords a particular yeah. yeah. But uh, again, they they adapted to that, yeah. And of course, that created expectations, and it creates uh, an idea. It also feeds back into their social position. In, in society. And so, of course, after unification, you have the loss of this authority and, and the sense of duty. I mean, what was maintained was this sense of duty, I think. But what is interesting when we look at cultural policy is this inter-regime thinking that really challenges terminology like, you know, profession. And uh, so, you know, w- what happened when something developed into a, into a democratic setting 
when we are applying a language that is developed in you know in in, in this uh, democratic set, setting for the artist this this notion of being an artist seems unquestioned and and of course that is also you know feeds into the idea of professional calling and so also the interpretation of the side job uh, adding to the professional profile of adjacent profession that helps to create these new perspectives. Um, so it's very much the focus uh, that, that I found is just on this inner calling and not being suited for the outer profession. And without a profession, there is this negation of administration. I mean, Bourdieu has been writing uh, about that. But it is... The, the understanding that administration is something they, they don't necessarily need to in, engage with. And so they view themselves as pretty much as researchers and they position themselves in between the field of time, aesthetics, play and transgression. But, is, um, but it is not only the... Um, I mean, they... In, in this sense, the idea of the, the profession uh, remains strong. But, uh, of course, not, when we look at the UK, this is all expressed uh, within the notion of professional practice. And, you know, I, I don't think we hardly talk about profession uh, as such. And that plays into this as well. It is this, what, what it gives. And for these artists, is this positive spin they have this kind of optimistic uh, outlook uh, developing their career. And I think, you know, this, this counts for a lot of people, it counts for academic as well. Um, that there is this, uh, that they are in charge of their uh, artistic development. And this is something, uh, you know, it is that the interventions are um, powered by, by the artist. So it's debatable, but that's the un understanding. What I find also interesting is that um, this sense of responsibility, you know, Weber talks about that, uh, that is, remains, you know, it, it came very strongly out during unification, but that remains that they, they feel there is, a, there is a task for them in society and they have a responsibility to that. But again, in Saxony, it's also very clo closely linked to uh, this idea of the Protestant work ethics. And, I mean, Luther, you know, I mean, that he had his 500th anniversary, was celebrated in Germany. He talks, actually, uh, of that work becomes a calling. And, and Luther understood work as, or he kind of made it universal, and uh, he he brought it forward as a unifying base for the society. So um, you know he he spoke out against this distinction between clerical work and the work of the farmer. And that um, in the artist interview, this kind of strong work ethics, I think, does connect with the idea of artistic excellence and quality being. Uh, you know, some of them had very um, kind of structured their, their day uh, and they made sure, you know, they spend a certain amount of time uh, at work. They'd rather talk about work rather than practice. 
So it's that is all uh, also, and it's difficult to say if this is you know it, because it's Saxony and that's the tradition there, or if it is a general idea. You know, I mean Weber, uh, you know, was uh, applicant made this applicable for the whole Western society. I think he didn't just you know kind of put it, the idea and said it's applicable in in, in the German context. I think he even went and, and looked into China as well at some point to do that. I mean, that, that, that's quite a nice clue, actually, as to the uh, the richness of the book, you know, in terms of it's not just a kind of a question of uh, a cohort of artists, but actually it's a book that's, you know, about these kind of um, very broad themes, both theoretically and also in terms of uh, the history of, of a particular place and, you know, the kind of broader literatures around things like professionalisation. And, I mean, we, we've, you know, we kind of only scratched the surface, really. We could have talked um, about, you know, kind of ideas of identity as well as professionalism. You know, there's a set of policy recommendations at the end of the book as well. But I guess to bring us to in conclusion, uh, I'm quite interested in, in sort of what uh, you're thinking about doing next beyond this. You know, you kind of gestured towards maybe doing a kind of a third moment in the cohort study, but um, are you sort of, you know, you've had quite enough of Saxonian artists and you won't be working on it again, or are you, you thinking about doing yeah, something similar? No, actually, the the uh, the richness of the data that uh, uh, currently I'm developing that and that relates to you know thinking about methodology and, and in particular about qualitative longitudinal research. Uh, the, you know this study developed into a longitudinal study. It wasn't set up as that, but um, it that longitudinal approach uh, brings with it uh, very interesting uh, connotations, which I want to explore more. And I think one of the the more you know, in the shorter term uh, project is that I want to find other people who um, relate to longitudinal research in in cultural policy. I mean, so far, you know, it's all about quantitative uh, research. There's very little on what I uh, what I know of uh, in in qualitative terms, and um, so I want to set up a network. That you know connects uh, or gives gives a space uh, for discussions, uh, and of course, in more tangible terms, I'm also thinking of developing then a, a data bank that can store these long-term projects. So very much thinking about the materiality of of longitudinal research. I mean, I started recording the interviews on the tape recorder, and then I, of course I switched to the phone, but. You know, this is all what happened uh, in material terms to to this data. But there are other issues related to, you know, the whole debate of anonymity and the ethical considerations that actually where our views change over time. And, you know, it changed substantially between the first and the second wave. And if there is a third wave, so, you know, what kind of ethical considerations? I started off with thinking about uh, that blanket anonymity has to be applied to the studies. The artists, on, on the one hand, they demanded that because they don't want to be identified, and you know, there's all relation to their social positioning uh, in society, to you know, receiving funding and what so. There are many issues. They they are very keen on being anonymized, but on the other hand, they also want to, you know, they they want to be known. 
and uh, and that causes havoc when you apply blanket anonymity. So um, yeah, so there, there are, these are all issues. They I would like to to work a little bit further on uh, more also in in kind of in the longer term for the longer term outlook to be better prepared when uh, I would embark on the third wave, but that would not be before 2930, 20, and that coincides then with another you know, anniversary of German, German unification. But then, of course, um, very attractive would be uh, um, that I might need to set up a new cohort, because the old, some of the old cohort will not be around anymore, and then I could do an intercohort comparison, which you know is something interesting uh, that can come out of a longitudinal uh, research. But uh, yeah, so you know it's it's a it's a long time until then. What I'm inter- what I'm also interested uh, in is this uh, as an as a policy outcome of of the book. A very last thing. I mean, there are many policy recommendations that the stakeholder, you know, could implement. But there's one thing, and that is wasn't touched in in by the artist at all. Is this awareness raising policies uh, that they would not engage in necessarily new technologies to the extent I'm used to, uh, you know, here in, in in the UK. And and of course, that is something uh, that. I think it would be fascinating uh, to do. And so I'm currently thinking of um, looking not just at, art, at visual artists, broaden out a bit and go into other uh, professions uh, and looking into craftspeople and there in particular into weavers. And there's a new project I developed called uh, Weaving Your Way Through the Blockchain where I uh, want to explore the issue of provenance that is tackled within the arts world. and uh, But, uh, you know, the craftspeople, they are, they, the understanding is that they sell their stuff and then, you know, then it's gone. But if you are, you know, weaving, you spend uh, a long time and it doesn't make any necessarily in financial terms, the rewards are not... You know, you can't compare that with the amount of, of uh, uh, thinking and work and, you know, and crafting you do. And uh, But they do care about provenance. Uh, and so the blockchain, I think, would be an, an interesting example to write a specific blockchain to capture provenance of, for example, vivos. And uh, what I discovered being a vivo myself is there are quite a few people with an uh, IT background uh, that you know. I mean, if you think the first computer was developed, you know, from the punch cards in uh, in the weaving. So that yeah. So I want that uh, is more kind of you know project that I'm working on currently. But of course, uh, if you look at the uh, visual artist cohort studies, there are other applications as well. And uh, for example, countries that might uh, have. Um, a unification agenda such as Korea or you know, Cuba and even in, to a certain degree China that there might be uh, you know further applications but that again you know is, is, is depending on the political situation. 
Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. Simone Vesna about artists' voices in cultural policy, careers, myths, and the creative profession after German unification.